Let's get started. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> Our special guest today is currently the CEO of the Victory Fund, in which its core mission is to support and elect LGBTQ candidates. Prior to that, she has served as city controller of Houston, Texas, also has served as city council member, and served three successful terms as mayor of Houston, making her the second woman to hold that position in the history of Houston, Texas, and also making her one of the first openly LGBTQ mayors of a big U.S. major city, I think is, if I get it right, you know, when we we start running these first. I actually was the the first first, uh, LGBTQ mayor of any of the top 100 cities. There you go. Yes, it's official. So, but, but you know what happened to me? I, I was only the tenth. Uh, I was actually the woman to the first woman to uh, lead the largest American city to have a woman mayor. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago took both titles. Wow! So <laughs> Chicago is now the biggest city to have a woman mayor and the biggest city to have an LGBTQ mayor. Third largest, fourth largest. Nonetheless, next census, I'm going to take my titles back. I'm there just you saying. Go. <laughs> but, well, let's welcome Mayor Anise uh, Parker. Glad to be with you. Um, you're finally here. I'm so grateful and so thankful that you're you're here in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club specifically for this program. We've had Mayor Parker here on the show before, but by phone. So I've already asked that question, the traditional question of you're coming out. We'll just jump right into the program the, in uh, this very important time. It's the last six-ish weeks of the year. And this nation is gripped by an impeachment hearing. We're not talking about that. However, we will know the fate of the president by the end of the year as we head into 2020, an election year. And so I think it feels almost like it's been a very fast four-ish years, um, but also uh, depressing in in a lot of ways for many of us as LGBTQ folks. I'll ask this question. um, How has... This president and this administration, how has it impacted you both personally and professionally? And I, and I don't mean to ask this question as if we're supposed to answer it with all gloom and doom, because I do think that some of the gloom and doom has turned into a lot of positivity, especially uh, your work with the Victory Fund. Well, I would say there's not anything positive coming out of the White House, but the... Reaction to that is sparking, I think, a, a renaissance in terms of folks interested in the political process, being more engaged, and for a lot of folks deciding for the first time that they want to run for office. Uh, more women, more candidates of color, more LGBTQ candidates than ever in American history by an order of magnitude. Uh, people all over America said, this is not, this is not the country that I want. This is not the country I love. I want to serve. And they just kept raising their hands. And it's, it's a good problem to have. Uh, 2018 was a, just a tidal wave of, uh, candidates and for progressive organizations, we were scrambling to, to keep up with the wave. It didn't stop. 
2019 was had an elevated number of candidates, just as 18 did, and 2020 looks like you know the tidal wave. It's going to be a real tsunami. That's just it just keeps growing and and building. And the good news is that these are amazing people who care deeply about their communities and they they are running anywhere and everywhere. Donald Trump's the best recruiter for Democratic candidates you could possibly have. And 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 sort of the the downside is that a lot of them are are first time candidates. They there's a learning curve. And you mentioned the LGBTQ Victory Fund, and I am the CEO of of that organization. It's a PAC, uh, nearly nearly thirty years old. The other side of the house is the LGBTQ Victory Institute, which is our C three side, and we do candidate campaign training. So it's been uh, a boom year there too because. Uh, we have been you know, working to put people into the political pipeline. We only work with LGBTQ candidates, and we are nonpartisan. Uh, although I will tell you that the state of uh, politics, uh, there are actually more trans elected officials in the United States than there are out, are out Republican elected officials. Uh, we endorsed, in 2018, we endorsed 294 candidates. Four of them were Republicans. And then the number keeps dropping. John. Let's go in a bit more on the most recent election at the beginning of this month. Uh, what did you see in, in terms of who ran, who won, and what do you think it means for this, as you said, this movement going forward? For us at, at Victory, since we only work with uh, – we don't work with allies. We don't do policy. We're, we're policy agnostic. Uh, it, we made this the, the year of the lesbian mayor. And for whatever reason – our women were stepping up to to run for mayor. So we were all in for Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, for Jane Castor in Tampa, Sacha Rhodes-Conway in uh, Madison, uh, Jolie Justice in Kansas City. We lost that one, but we won the other three overwhelmingly. And then uh, we do do some international work. Uh, Claudia Lopez is now the mayor of Bogota, Colombia, a city of 7 million people. So we we did a lot of work in in Colombia as well. So uh, women doing really well, actually, for our uh, LGBTQ candidates and and for women in general running. We win at higher rates. We run at much lower rates, mm-hmm. but we win uh, anywhere between five and ten percent higher uh, the number the percentage of races. Why do you so, think that is? Well. <laughs> okay, I'll be serious. Uh, women tend to wait longer, and we we tend to want to be more qualified. We, you know, that, yeah. oh, I need one more credential, or I'm not quite ready. Uh, so we're often better prepared when we run. And for certain races, uh, women actually get a little bit of a bump. I was a city controller for the city of Houston for uh, three terms, three terms council member, three terms controller, three terms mayor. Guess what? We have term limits after three terms. Uh, so I was up and out each time. Uh, the only other woman mayor of Houston was also the only other city controller to become mayor of Houston. Uh, controllers and treasurers uh, tends to be a good thing for, for women to run for. Uh, but I think this year is especially people perceive women candidates as uh, – more honest, more trustworthy, and give us a little bit of the, the benefit of the doubt. I, I was, if I could continue, I, I was particularly pleased to see two of my former 
hometowns, Madison, Wisconsin, and Chicago, both elect uh, lesbian, openly lesbian mayors in this round, or I guess that was earlier this year. Um, and now Madison has long been a very liberal city. Chicago is a democratic city, but Chicago not only elected a lesbian, they elected an African-American. I mean, if you talk about the first and the second, she's only the second female mayor of that city. Um, and where I'm going here is back in 1980, in the 1980s, when Harold Washington, an African-American congressman, ran to become mayor of Chicago, it was like the only time that the Republican Party was even viable to have a candidate because you had so much back, white backlash, people who would not vote for an African-American. This time, not only did an African-American woman win, the other candidate in the runoff was an African-American woman. Um, so if you could talk a bit about the changing of the maybe the, those urban cities and what that means for LGBTQ folks, what it means for the parties as well. I know a lot of folks think about local elections, municipal elections as being smaller elections or, or less important elections. As mayor of Houston, I represented more people than the governors of 15 states. Mm-hmm. These are big money, full contact uh, elections, but they tend to be nonpartisan. And you don't get elected mayor promising to, I'm going to cut your taxes and cut your services. It's about, it's, it's operations. And in Chicago, the overwhelming issue was the idea of corruption. They just want the city to work. Right. And they were looking for, for competence and leadership. And uh, in, in Lori Lightfoot, she ran on, a, on an openness and transparency platform, uh, rooting out corruption in government. And the citizens of, of Chicago just said, we've, we've had enough and we, we want change. It is very different running. All of my races have been at the municipal level and nonpartisan. And they, when you're running on, you're not running on a party platform. You're not running on the sort of the tribalism or within the tribalism that has taken over other levels of government. It is about results. And when you think about it, Flint, Michigan being a uh, horrible example that sort of proves the rule – by and large, cities across America are well run. There are problems. Poverty, in, income inequality, transportation, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, but they get addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the feedback loop is really immediate. And so uh, when you move from that local level of government to then uh, you know, state or national government, it's a there's the partisan shift, but there's also the the shift away from what are the operational needs? What is going to happen in my city today? Running a city is like riding a bicycle. If you stop pedaling, the bicycle falls over. And you ha- so you have to keep pedaling. You have to keep doing things. At the other levels of government, it is about uh, it's almost <laughs> scoring points yeah. and, and talking about things. Yeah. I remember talking with uh, William Hudnut, who was a longtime moderate Republican mayor of Indianapolis, and he was making much that same point, though literally just talking about when he would drive to work when he was mayor, um, and if he saw a pothole, this was before cell phones, as soon as he got to the office, he was on the phone calling DPW or whatever, and he, he basically if the next time he was driving on that road there was still a hole there, there would be hell to pay. Uh, much different than you always hear from senators and especially presidents. It's like they want to get something done and they, there's no button to push. There's no, you know, you can't. So that seems very 
very much to ring. It's why being a big city, ma- being a, actually a mayor in a in a strong mayor city, yeah, that was it's the best political job. You make things happen. Staying on that topic, though, I mean, I'd love for you to cover the experience of when um, identity politics come into play and who's really behind that. We can't take away what experiences you might have had um, when you know your sexual orientation uh, is brought up, and and it's it's very comforting to hear you know when you get to a local election you're running for mayor people do tend to vote more for somebody who's going to get the work done get the city going um but at also at times i I don't think that we can ignore that identity politics come into play especially when we talk about voter suppression and so forth and so on this then this gets into what we'll talk about in 2020 and some of our democratic candidates and what people are looking for um, so what I, what I mean to ask is, you know, at, at what point does that part of you as a candidate become uh, talking points or, you know, is that when your opponents bring it up uh, mainly if it's not the voters? Um, yeah. Every candidate has a different path to and through an election. And while I bristle a little bit at the, you know, the phrase identity politics, because I think it's often meant as a pejorative. That's what I do now. I mean, LGBTQ Victory Fund and the LGBTQ Victory Institute, it is about identity politics. The idea that, uh, since we don't do policy, putting the right person in the right place, they'll do the right thing. And for us, representation of the community is the right thing. That is the definition of, of identity politics. But we don't support every LGBTQ candidate. Last year, in that the big part of the big blue wave, then the, the rainbow wave that was embedded in it, more than 700 out LGBTQ candidates ran. We touched about 400 of those. We formally screened something like 320, and, and we endorsed in the 274 races. Uh, so we, we, have a, we have a viability standard and a credibility standard. You have to be a capable, uh, qualified candidate, and then you have to have a path to victory. And but the reason we do the work and because we think it's important is that we think democracy is better when it reflects more fully the population. And for us, uh, as a seriously underrepresented minority and often targeted minority population, we have to be in the halls of power making decisions. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the Pete Buttigieg campaign for president is – so important for us. He's, we, we've endorsed him. So I love this. Uh, we endorse, we're the only national organization that does every level of the ballot in every state and foreign territories. There's a, an out lieutenant governor in Guam. So there you go. Uh, but we have endorsed a mosquito control board in South Florida where it's a really big deal all the way up to presidential candidate, our first ever presidential candidate. And, you know, if when we have a strong, capable candidate running, whether or not they win the race, they don't lose mm-hmm. in terms of the community. Because, you know, every day that Pete Buttigieg is in the race, whether he becomes the nominee or not, he changes the landscape for the candidates that are going to come after him. People see him, they respond to him, and it broadens their perspective of what an openly LGBTQ candidate is and, and does and what he sounds like, what he looks like, what issues are important mm-hmm. uh, to him. And so it's a, a game changer. Now, we have endorsed him. We hope he wins. But uh, 
for us, we we care deeply about the process and 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 running. And then, since the institute trains candidates, we also work with existing uh, elected officials, LGBT elected officials, to try to help them move up the political process because it is a pipeline. Uh, you run and win at the at the local level. Our the the poster child for for this. United States Senator Tammy Baldwin, she was a county commissioner in Madison. Mm-hmm. She became a state rep. She became a member of Congress. She became a United States senator. That that pipeline. Jared Polis, who's the first openly, LG, first openly gay, I'll use the first openly gay governor of any American state, governor of Colorado. He was a statewide election uh, official in, in um, some education post. I don't remember what it was. Member of Congress governor of of Colorado moving up the the pipeline and at every level you have an opportunity to represent your constituents but you also have an opportunity to to change hearts and minds so identity politics and and what I meant by that is exactly what he would said i mean who uses that term a lot uh, during you know campaigns or election season it's usually right wing folks you know conservatives who uh, use that to divide many of of voters. And I wanted to use the example of uh, Virginia and Danica Rome, you know, trans elected person who really rose above a lot of the transphobic attacks and also people who tried to use her trans identity to wedge voters. But she really just beautifully stuck to her core mission, which is to make the city work. And Route Route 28. Yeah. She won't talk about anything but Route 28. That's what she ran on, what she promised her constituents. She has been working on Route 28. They just reelected her Route 28. Yeah. And it leads, it leads though, because we're, we are going to talk about, you know, 2020 and what LGBTQ voters should be thinking about. Um, I will tell you, you know, this growing conversation around, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and his candidacy for president, and it and he it kind of like this this growing conversation around um, is he progressive enough or uh, could could is he electable? That's the question. Um, which I kind of get heartburn thinking about that question because are we going to lose twenty twenty again uh, with these? types of conversations that divide us. Uh, you know, he might be gay, but he's not progressive enough with the black community and all this other stuff. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this whole conversation around electability. So every time I ran for a new position, I was told that I wasn't electable, that there's no way that people would vote for me for that position. And I, I actually lost my first two races. I ran two different city council races in Houston. Third time, I figured it out, and then I won nine consecutive races. Uh, by the time I ran for mayor, I was the the safe choice, the known choice. And again, that goes back to the identity politics. That's we, you get over the shock value. Oh my gosh, there's an LGBTQ candidate. When I was the night I was elected, it made worldwide news coverage. I was on The Daily Show. Jay Leno made a joke about me. Uh, uh, Rachel Maddow uh, gave me a shout-out. Houstonians were like, really? This is important? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, by that time, they were so used to me. That it, didn't, it wasn't a big – that's what, that's what we want to get to. Is Pete Buttigieg electable? I don't know. The only way you can tell is 
get out there and do it. But what I do know is this idea that there's a, a particular mold of candidate and we have to have that particular mold of candidate. I'm, I'm a Democrat. I'm from a big city in Texas. My politics are pretty centrist and I look a lot different than a Democratic mayor out here in California, certainly a Democratic mayor in San Francisco. The candidates that we work with down ballot across the country have to fit their districts. People vote for them because they understand the issues, they are of the community, and they have a plan for addressing the things that are important in that community. And they're they're context-specific. So I don't expect going into an election, particularly at the national level, that I will agree with the the uh, platform positions of every presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket or even the ultimate nominee. And I'll, and I'll say that um, I was all in for Hillary Clinton the last time all the way through. It's the first time in my adult life that I picked a candidate and she was actually the nominee. He or she was actually the nominee. Uh, so I've always had to say, said, all right, I'm going to move. We're going to find the right one to, to, to go forward. And so this you may decide that you're a you're a purist and you you care only about a single issue and you're going to stick go down in flames on on that issue that's great you're not going to win elections. We have the obligation to pick the best candidate to represent us and that best candidate is the person who can best run the United States of America. And if we, as Democrats, can't then go out and convince people to vote for that person, that is a different problem. We should never decide that we're going to go with uh, the lesser of evils or the uh, uh, we need to um, find the least common denominator, someone who can beat Trump. No, we have an obligation to pick the person we decide can best lead the country. And then uh, uh, having I, – I said already that I'm a Democrat and I lead a, non, a, a nonpartisan organization, but uh, Donald Trump has had uh, no positive benefits at all. Positive benefits? No. No, nothing positive to offer the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Uh, if certainly there are other reasons why someone might support his reelection, but if that is the issue that is the most important to you, you cannot support him. Mm-hmm. John, let's get more into 2020 and and the issues for LGBTQ candidates um, on different levels. Obviously, the big enchilada is the White House, but. Um, you know, we talked about Danica and and wrote twenty eight. We talk about Tammy Baldwin, and I follow her on the social media. She still does constituent services. She I, does it beautiful, like I, like local level constituent yes. services. You know, if you call any other member of of Congress, you say I have this pothole issue, and they'll say, call your your city council member. Her people will pick up the phone and call the the city council member for you. Yeah, that's how you get elected and stay there. My home state. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, what are some of the issues and, and what are you – as your the institute is talking to these candidates, both potential and the ones who are already announced and such, what are you – I mean how do you – are you advising them on certain uh, uh, approaches to take or are you more kind of 
measuring to see how well they are able to do in the, the individual markets they're in. Uh, it's it's more the the latter again. I said you you have to you have to fit your 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 district and and your constituents, and you have to have something to offer them. You may be you might be a great candidate in this race or in this area, but but not over here. And so and, and do you ever go to them and say, you know what? Yes. Yeah, maybe yeah, you should be running for this thing. Well, we have a vetting process for our candidates. Remember, I said there were uh, more than 700 candidates who ran last year, and, and and we touched about 400 of them, and we screened 300-something. And uh, we did the same thing this year. There were – we endorsed in, I think, something – 180-something races in uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. Our candidates that we endorsed – 63% of them won. The races where we looked, there were 100 races that we looked at and said, mm, no, I don't think so. Four of them won. So we do a good, pretty, pretty good eye on whether they are electable. And, and that's what we do. We're a, we were actually founded, Victory was founded by some of the same people who founded Emily's List. And we have a very similar model. We're a bundling organization. So what we provide is that, that vetting process for candidates. But then... What we do with those candidates who haven't won their races, and I very carefully don't call them losing candidates, we say, maybe you're in the wrong place. Come to our candidate campaign training. Let's see if we can up your skills or redirect you to a place that better suits what you want to do. A lot of folks say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run for Congress. That, actually, having been in office, I was first elected 22 years ago. I've been out of office uh, four years now. And I, I wish I could tell you how many times someone has come up to me and said, I want to run for public office someday. No one cares that you want to run for public office. What do you want to do? That's where you have to start. The office is a tool. It's not a destination. And when you figure out what you want to do, then you figure out the right place to be. But it, a lot of times people are focused on that bright, shiny object. Uh, now, from what I'm doing today, Mayor Pete's a little bit of a bright, shiny object. He's <laughs> sucking a lot of the air out of the room for our other LGBTQ candidates because he is he's, he's, he's a gifted politician. He's very dynamic. He's running a great race. But he's not just sucking the air out of the room. He's sucking a lot of money out of the room. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you, but think about it. If you have uh, you know, $2,700 you want to put in a political race and you give it all to Mayor Pete, you don't have anything for your, your local candidates. and. So that's a, a little bit of a uh, of a challenge for us. Well, and then before I, I go back to Michelle here, does that what, do you do any of that communication to the LGBTQ and LGBTQ friendly voter in about that exact issue? Hey, spread your money around. We do now. As I said, we're a bundling organization, so we have a network of donors across the country that we continually work to build, okay. and we provide information about candidates to those donors and they choose which ones to support and our websites uh, victoryfund.org and, and victoryinstitute.org and um but we also as a pack will donate directly into certain campaigns as i said our focus was on mayor's races mm-hmm. this year next year our focus will be on state house races much actually much more important than Congressional races for us. Why? Hmm. Redistricting. There you go. Uh, we have to. Uh, we have to have moderation 
in some of these state houses in order to have good redistricting. Uh, or we can we can flip seats and they'll just go right back. Yeah. So we doing the long game. We have to we have to focus on that. So we support candidates directly. We support them through our donor base, and we also sometimes do independent expenditures for candidates. Uh, Victory has an independent. It, it may, maybe define that for. Uh, for Something that is a in support of a uh, a candidate or an issue, but completely independent of the campaign for that issue. So Victory has an independent expenditure uh, fund for Pete Buttigieg, but we have a firewall. I'm on the wrong side of the firewall. I know that we have an independent expenditure campaign, but I have a staff member. We're a small organization, only 20 of us. So I have one staff member who's on the other side of the wall and, and is embedded in that. And uh, I can talk to the campaign, but he cannot, and that's how that's how that works. So we get to, but it's it's the dark money. I am part of the dark money in politics. Okay, so but independent of the campaign, I mean, we we report. You can see where all our money comes from, but it's spent independent of the candidate. Okay. Wow, that's a whole nother hour. We can about. <laughs> You're the first person we who's report. actually admitted their dark oh, I'm, money I'm making, right here in the Commonwealth yeah, Club. Yeah, you know, I. I you don't look I, as evil as I always expected the dark money. I prefer, I prefer that we give directly into the, the campaigns. Yeah. And we do, we do fully report everything that, that, that we get. There are, you know, there are some other – there are ways we're not truly the dark money because we do report. But it's that we get lumped in yeah. with that. While we uh, – before we get too far, and I know we're going to have some – questions from the audience. Really, I do think we all ought to take a moment and reflect that today is the National Transgender Day of Remembrance and that uh, there's an epidemic of violence directed at particularly at trans women and trans women of color across America and that is uh, not in any way helped by what's going on in Washington and, and from the White House. But it's not just that, that that we have to figure out a way to provide safety. One of the – I was a lesbian activist in the 1970s. I'm 63 years old. Uh, you know, I have a Wikipedia page. There's no secrets in politics. So, and I was a lesbian activist in the, in the 70s, and I used to tell people that there is like, the homosexual agenda. I would be on – Ah, the homosexual agenda. I said, there's no such thing as a homosexual agenda. But there really is an agenda. I just didn't know it at the time. No one told me. <laughs> I wasn't in the secret meeting to know the agenda. But but part of that agenda is it's things like being able to serve in the military and being able to honor our relationships. And But one of the items on that agenda is to be able to walk in safety down any street in America and just be who you are. And for our trans women of color, they cannot do that. Mm-hmm. And we have to make that change. Thank you for bringing that up because it was one of my questions and wanted to hear your thoughts. You know, Texas is leading the country this year in the most um, uh, at least known murders of trans women, trans women of color. And before leaving or being termed out as mayor, I know we've read about it that that Houston tried to pass an equal rights ordinance, um, which included protections, you know, for our community, inclusive of the transgender community. And if I am not mistaken, I do think that 
uh, it was voted upon and then reversed, or it, it actually never it was really re- passed. It passed council, uh, and it was repealed by the voters. We have initiative and referendum, and so let's stay on that because I do think that as we we look into 2020, I mean, we've got to do something. How do how are we going to provide protections for trans women, trans women of color, or LGBTQ people? There's got to be laws on the books. How do we get there? So the, the, there's already laws on the books that, that, against murder and against assault. And so it's not there's not more laws on the, the books. Right. It's better enforcement of those laws. But the bigger problem is that a lot of trans women are, are seriously discriminated against. They have no other economic options. And many of them are become sex workers. And that's where they get targeted. And... So providing protections that allow them access to economic opportunities is why you need the, you know, the, those non-discrimination laws, not necessarily the laws. Uh, you know, it, that, it, that's why we need to what make that distinction. It, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of what I meant in terms of I think that sometimes we do have – yes, you're right, these you know, basic laws of the books. And people assume that it's wholly inclusive. Um, but not all the time, like if we're using the argument, and I, don't, and I don't think that it's nationwide. I think in certain states that it's limited um, when we're specifically talking about in, in more than half the In more than half the states, there's no statewide uh, non-discrimination protection for the LGBTQ community. And uh, while almost every big city in America, in fact, Houston is one, is the, an outlier in the top 10, but certainly in the top 100 big cities. And is having no non-discrimination protection for anyone. It's not just for the LGBTQ community, uh, but but wholly inclusive. I think that that's we, we, we yeah we we passed a wholly inclusive non-discrimination ordinance. And and I will say that I was naive. I've been in office for a long time at that point, and I'd been an activist for a long time. And I thought because we were starting from scratch and we were protecting everybody both the federally protected classes and also sexual orientation and gender identity, that we'd have an easy time of it. Mm-hmm. And n- no, although the, w- the, the couple of the, the one positive for me that came out of that vote, even though it was really hard to, to lose and have the ordinance repealed was that the average age of voter, this was a municipal election in Houston four years ago, we elected the, my successor mayor, the average age of voter was 68 years old. That's why. Mm. That's why it was repealed. Mm-hmm. This, we, this war is won with millennials. It's pretty well won with Gen Xers and you know baby boomers maybe, but uh, 68 and up. Yeah. And, and until younger people decide that local elections matter, we're going to continue to to lose battles like that. Let's stay on who votes. And I mean, it, John and I were talking about this and we read the shocking article and I think it, I don't know if it was Fortune or it was a business um, uh, uh, website or, or publication. And they reported that one in five uh, LGBTQ adults who are eligible to vote are actually registered, um, which seems like, you know, it's very shocking and we need more people registered to vote, uh, drive people who will vote, uh, you know, for the issues that we care about. Uh, what do you think? I mean, what do you think is behind the, that? The, the Latinx community in, in Texas, and, and I've trained myself. It used to be Latino. Now it's, you know, Latinx, gender neutral. Latinx community in Houston 
is 42%, state of Texas, something north of, north of 40%, 12% of the vote. So it's not just the LGBTQ community. So this goes back to the issue of identity politics. If I don't see myself running for office, if I don't see myself in office, if I don't see any benefits from being involved in the political process, why am I going to why am I going to take the time and, and energy to do it? And if we don't raise a generation that thinks it's important, I mean, I'd like to think I vote because it's important, but I vote because my parents and grandparents were avid voters. They all were Republicans, but <laughs> but I, I mean, they went. And I remember my, some of my earliest memories are standing in line, waiting outside the polling places with them for them to go into the, the voting booth. And remember the voting booths, there's like the confessional, there's big, they, the curtain, you pull the lever and the curtains closed behind you and you felt you were doing something important and weighty and it was worth standing in, in line for. But if, and I drag my wife and I, we drag our kids to the, uh, we, we, we do, we try to imprint them. We do, we go to the polls together. And it's a little different with the little East Slate machines, like a little etch a sketch. This doesn't, doesn't have the weight and the gravitas. But it's, it's that you don't have a history of voting. You don't, and you don't see that it, that it, oh, well, I went and voted, worked my heart out for Hillary Clinton, and I got Donald Trump. Why should I do this again? What's the answer? And isn't part of the problem also, I'm going to sound 30 years older than I am, but a lack of civics education. Well, there's I, definitely I don't know lack, what it's like in Texas, but No, no, in California, there's definitely a lack of, of you know, civics education. Uh, and because that, that not only is about voting, it's, uh, I don't know how many conversations we've had around impeachment, for example, and just realizing that so many people seem to think the impeachment actually means you remove the president. It's like, no, no, no that's just bringing charges. Yeah. You know, it's just knowing the, these processes. It's like the, it's like indicting him, but there's all yeah. these, these, this arcane language. Right. But yeah. it's still, it's like, these are things, if you're really into politics, you know. But if you're not, you're not being taught them. And if you're not being taught them, you're, you're not inspired to feel that you have any role to play in it. And that's obviously going to cut down your, your, your voting uh, propensity, I think. We think that we – I talk to people all the time who tell me that, oh, you know, politics is dirty or politics is, is boring or I don't understand politics. Politics is just how we choose who makes decisions for us. Uh, we can't – we don't. We can't always be there making all the decisions individually and collectively. So we pick people to represent us, and the method we have chosen is politics. The other methods are worse. Mm -hmm. This is a good time now to uh, engage the audience. It's your turn to ask Mayor Anise Parker your questions, and so John is walking around with the mic. Wonderful presentation. Very. Enlightening, very educational. You gave us a number of wonderful sound bites. Um, let's see if I can remember my three favorites, which is, which is, you know, it's all about the pothole. Um, another is you want to find the person who will do the job, who will make Houston, you know, a, a good city. And then the last one was just your last sentence about, uh, and, that, and that included this great city. It's not about the party platform. It's about who's who can you count on to do the job, and then this. My my question, I forget what the third one was. You just said it. It's great, but um, how 
how does this apply when you're voting for president of the United States? I mean, right now, I'm, I'm afraid everyone's looking at the potholes, immigration or health care, rather than looking at him in my favorites, Pete Buttigieg. And I, he became my favorite when he spoke at the Commonwealth Club half a year ago. I just love the way he talked. I want him to run this country. And I don't know about his platform or, or I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican. So but I'm not sure that doesn't seem to apply at all when you come to a national election. Because we've bought into that narrative that that uh, we have to choose one of the, the two tribes and the two tribes are perpetually at at war. What I'm fascinated by is the number of former mayors who have, uh, are on the uh, running on the uh, for, to be the Democratic nominee. I think there were five, maybe six, because Bloomberg just dro- dropped into the, parachuted into the the, uh, the nomination process. And it's, again, it's that we, you have uh, some, we have great candidates uh, on the, on the running on the Democratic side. Uh, a lot of different uh sets of experiences and skill set, uh, skills and, you know, uh, demographic diversity. We have a, we have a, a wealth of talent there. And I happen to think that the best executive training is to be a, a mayor. The, the difference between being in a legislative role and in, in a, an executive role like mayor or governor is that legislators choose issues, issues choose executives. You have to deal with everything that comes in the door. Good or bad. I remember uh, talking to somebody after Pete left the campaign trail because there was a bad shooting in uh, South Bend. And he's at a town hall meeting and he's being yelled at by people. And someone's like, oh, he looked weak. No one should put up with that. I'm like, that's like every week as a mayor. You're with your constituents and you help them process the hard things. And when... You know, after the last uh, election and members of Congress stopped holding town hall meetings because they're afraid somebody would be in their face and get yell at them. Mayors don't have the luxury of not addressing those kinds of things. So it's it's great training. But we have to it's up to us as as voters to to decide again. You know, there's still there's the tribalism at the top, and then there's why well, I'm only going to vote for somebody who has exposition on climate change, or exposition, or why position on uh, immigration, or on on gun control. Well, I'm going to tell you if you care about those issues at all, you're going to vote for a Democrat, and don't let the the perfect be the enemy of the good. Who is the best person that you can trust to tell you the truth? I mean. I'm proud of my years in, in public office and for 18 years in, in Houston. I'm, I'm proud of the things I've done. But if I had a do-over, there are definitely things I, I – like, oh, man, boy, I wish I'd known that or I'd done something different. Not anything I'm ashamed of, but things that I just – I'd do differently or I'd want to do over. So the idea that, that we have to pick a candidate who agrees with us on everything is absurd. And we have to get past that. And uh, you know that – like the check boxes, the party discipline. Let's spread the word. Let's let it start here. Let's take it out there. That was beautiful. <laughs> okay. We have another question back here. Hi. Um, just to continue on the electability uh, discussion 
as it relates to uh, Mayor Pete, it seems to me that um, we're going to get very, very deep into this argument, um, possibly right after February 1st when he could very well win the Iowa caucuses. Um, And I'd like to hear you maybe reflect on your own experience and, and perhaps the experience of other statewide candidates such as Tammy Baldwin and, and Jared Paulus on uh, what is, what is the slice of the electorate that uh, is deterred from voting for a candidate uh, based on sexual orientation? Uh, It seems to me there's a slice of the electorate who will be, very resistant to that. There's also a slice of the electorate that, who won't vote for a Democrat, period. And the question is, you know, how much do those two uh, groups overlap? Um, anyway, your thoughts. I think there's a huge overlap, frankly. But one of the One of the ideas that's floating out there is that black voters won't vote for uh, an LGBTQ candidate. Mm. First of all, it ignores the fact that there are black members of the broader LGBTQ community. And, you know, lots of jokes about who runs the the church choirs uh, across America. But you also, you look at Lori Lightfoot, black lesbian, who's now the the mayor of Chicago, won every ward, won 73% of the vote. Uh, We are electing uh, LGBTQ candidates all across the South, all across the the Bible Belt. Neil Rafferty is the one member, out member of the Arkansas House of Representatives, represents a a black district. Uh, There are... uh, in my races, I always had uh, I always had black opponents, and I always had a significant uh, portion of the African American vote. My first council race that I won had seventy had uh, African American opponents. I had ended up with seventy five percent of the black vote. Um, at the same time, when I ran for for mayor of Houston, I made this comment earlier. I was I was the safe candidate. I was running against a first time candidate. I was running, actually running against an African American lawyer. Good guy, smart, capable. Our politics were, were fairly fairly similar. Uh, Republican voters in Houston voted for me. Barbara Bush, who was one of my constituents, Barbara and George Bush were my constituents, 41, not 43. Uh, and Barbara Bush formally endorsed me for in my in my mayor's race because it had nothing to do with partisan politics. She thought I was going to be the, the, the better uh, candidate. And so, you know, not only... Will, will, will Republicans vote for LGBT candidates? But uh, uh, so will so will Black voters, and we prove it over and over again. Now, that doesn't tell us whether they will vote for this particular candidate, Pete Buttigieg. He's got to go. Uh, you know, he's had an Iowa strategy for a while. He's doing a masterful job, but he's going to have to go spend some time in the South. Now, his secret weapon is that he is truly a man of faith. He talks about his faith. He lives his faith. And I have every confidence that he can sit down 
with you know in a room of of African American pastors from AME churches in the deep south and and talk about God and about politics and what's possible and convert them so to speak uh you know so he but he has to have the time and the inclination to do it and i think he'll get there but you know it's a it's a marathon not a not a sprint and so there you know he's got i don't know what his internal strategy is to do that but he he has to do it we win when voters know us but when we know our voters and have a demonstrated track record of of doing of working together on issues and so it's absolutely possible i don't i don't know if it'll work for pete but i i'm not deterred at all and as to the you know 20 percent of the folks this is something one of the first things you have to learn if you're in in politics that 20 percent of the people will be mad at you no matter what you do you can walk on water and 20 percent of the people will say she walks on water because she is unable to swim <laughs> and that's just you'll be just get over it and, and the, the second thing you have to learn in politics is that happy people don't show up to tell you they are happy. And I want you to think about that. If you're a local elected official, no one shows up at the city council meeting to say, oh, I am so happy with my city services. They pick up the trash every day. It's like, darn it, you, 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 you knocked my trash can over and there's this pothole and there's this water main break and there's this you didn't do. So you get the negatives. And, you've, and, and a lot of politicians get broken on that rock, which is you're trying to get to that last 20% or you get so caught up in, in all the negatives that you that you don't folk, you don't able to prioritize because you're running from brush fire to, to brush fire. Again, another reason why it's that local elected experience can be uh, positive uh, as you move up to the higher office. And we have to recognize that these are all of these uh, are, I won't say all, most of the, the candidates out there running on the Democratic ticket, they they're experienced public officials. They know what they, they know who they are and they know what they want to do. And we have to be willing that once we settle on a nominee to go out and, and fight for that, that person. And, the, and again, get over the idea they have to be perfect. But I know that, I know that black voters in the South will vote for Mayor Pete. They may not but they will and would if they got the opportunity to meet him. Great. Can we talk about civics education again for a moment? Uh, Since I was 13 years old, I've owned a copy of the Constitution, and I want to tell you why. When I was in the eighth grade, my American history teacher, who was the football coach, you know, the guy who gets, gets a bad rep, gave us each a copy of the Constitution, and a workbook, and we spent one whole grading period learning it. I've been political ever since. Mm -hmm. And several of the people in that class have as well. I think long-term. Can you give me an idea as to how we can get that, get the country infected with that? Kids need to know the Constitution when they're young, so they're infected with it. Yes. And the I, do I have an answer to that? No. And I will tell you that not only do we need to bring back civics education, we also need to bring back basic uh, exactly. economic 
education. Our kids come grow up. They don't know how to, they don't know how to balance a checkbook. They don't understand the banking system. They don't understand budgeting and finance. They don't, uh, you know, heck, even even a home ec a class. I mean, we are not providing. When we talk about a well-rounded education, we you know we every state has their their tests that you have to pass the test to move up. And not saying that that acquiring those academic skills aren't, aren't important, but we also, if the parents aren't going to do it, if we as parents aren't going to do it, then the, then the someone has to step in, and and not only civics education, but these uh, these other things as well. Uh, I am shocked and and a little bit horrified at times at how little young people who are who are you know graduating from high school and they're not prepared at all for just life mm-hmm. now we have uh my um wife and i we have if i say i was about to say we have four kids they're all young adults our youngest is 24 but uh three uh, girls who came out of the foster care system and they're among them. They have uh, six brothers who aged out of the foster care system. Uh, three of them ended up on the streets. You know, but part of it is not having the support network. The other is not having to know, not knowing when they get out how to how to uh, how to budget, how to pay bills, how to do any of the life skills that we we learned at home and we took for granted. I have to point out that the Commonwealth Club actually is addressing that exact issue with a new uh, education programming that we're – a whole division we're creating that will be addressing civics education and involving young people, students, K through 12 in, you know, learning how things work and how to participate. So keep an eye out for that. We have another question back here. Hi, Mayor. This is off topic a little bit. And I read a lot about current politics, and um, like you, I was very much a Hillary um, devotee and, and woke up the next day thinking she would be president. Since you're a person of politics, <laughs> I'd like to know, um, how do you explain the total um, annihilation of the Republican Party by one person? I just would like to know your thoughts, because I've read books... And I read the New York Times and I read reliable media news sources and I still don't understand mm. because I know there are good people that are Republicans. It's a triumph of self-interest over the common good because you can't tell me that the uh, – you know, I know – many members of Congress who they, they – they want to get reelected. They can't get reelected if Trump comes after them. They'll do whatever it takes to to keep the job, and that's what we've forgotten. That you know, it's the, the job is not a destination; it's a tool to do things. And if the, if you're misusing the tool or you're not using the tool, you shouldn't be there. It's also, I'm not a fan of term limits. Term limits gave me my opportunity to run, and it also term limits forced me to at each level to decide. Do I want to go back to the private sector? I worked in the oil industry for 20 years before I entered politics. Do I want to go back to the private sector or do I want to, to keep moving up? And I decided to keep moving up. But we passed term limits across America. And then when we got to Congress, we said, mm, maybe we'll stop. 
And so you have uh, an entrenched political class that's more worried about staying in office than about doing things. I'm not saying that the answer is necessarily term limits, but it certainly forces an answer on us. Any other questions? Thank you very much. I found this really interesting. Now, I'm... My wife is not here, but uh, so I can speak for her, I guess. Um, <laughs> when I say I like Pete Buttigieg, he will, her reaction will be very strong, and she will say, I knew it, I knew it, you will never vote for a woman. Mm-hmm. That's what she would say. I know that. Uh, so uh, that I hear might... women say that uh, regularly. Yeah. And she also... And this we hear and we get here this in San Francisco. If somebody says, "Vote for me because I'm gay," she will, whether it's a woman or a man, she will never vote for that person. So I really like what you had to say about uh, what makes why would somebody win an election? It's the issues, and it's what I am going to be doing. Now, if you want to ask me whether I'm gay or not, I'll answer honestly, but never up front with that. Woman, gay, it's the issue. And this is what I, is this what I heard you say? Uh, you know, here's what I'm going to do. And uh, so, you agree with me or not? Vote for me if you like what I want to do. Yes. And and we, we've trained hundreds of out LGBT candidates. And in fact, of the winning candidates on the, in 2019, uh, more than a quarter of them, I think 27% of the LGBT candidates who won actually at some point went through a victory training to get into that pipeline. We work hard to, to prepare people. And when I say we're policy agnostic, you have to be openly LGBT, uh, we believe in a right to privacy, uh, which means that we are a pro-choice organization, uh, and we're fully trans-inclusive. And beyond that, we, we, we don't care. But what we mean by openly LGBT is I, I don't – no, I would never ask somebody to vote for me because I am gay. Mm-hmm. And ver- clearly Pete Buttigieg does not do that. But the fact that I'm gay or that he's gay, it informs our life experiences. It It has – shaped how we view the world, and it shapes some of the things that we care about. What's uh, amazing to me, and uh, I was first elected mayor 10 years ago. We have uh, two-year terms in in Houston, so in 18 years, that's nine elections. Uh, So we're on the ballot a lot. Uh, Is looking at how in the short period of time since we've had equal marriage, how comfortable Pete is talking about his husband, Chastin. My wife and I have been together. We've been together 29 years. We've been married six in, in, in January. I still can't get to the point where I can, I mean, I have to stop and think, yes, she's my wife. And I have to make myself say that word. Pete knows it and lives it in, in that. You know, he's comfortable in his own skin. That's what we want. I don't want you to vote for him because he's openly LGBT. I don't want you to vote for a woman because she's a woman. I want you to vote for someone that you believe is a great candidate. Now, when it, if it comes down to A or B and you want to tilt because someone's gay or because someone's a woman, that's a little bit different. But, you know, that's not why you're doing it. You have to choose between equals. What's going to tip you? Uh, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of women out there who, who I hear and I understand. I was in mourning after Hillary lost, and I'm I'm glad that I'm glad she didn't lose the popular vote because I don't know if I would have gotten over that one. <laughs> but uh, and uh, it's it's time. But who is the best person to to lead the country and heal the country, bring the country together? In my view, it's it's Pete Buttigieg, and he has to, but he has to convince a whole lot of other folks to do that. What what is most important though for your wife and for everybody else is that once we have a nominee. Are we going to get behind the nominee because we want that person to have the opportunity to to, to run the country? Okay. I think that we have time for together. one more question. I have sort of the, the kind of the flip side of that. After um, Hillary's defeat um, in the Electoral College, um, I started looking more in depth at um, sociological research about women in power, and there are still reams of it. Uh, even conducted in 2018 that show that there is a deeply ingrained misogynistic vein in this country where a woman who steps out of a, um, a role as a helper and is actually becomes the point person of power. And I, I do believe we've bumped it up, right? It, it doesn't seem to be as true on the uh, local government level as it perhaps once was. But there are still a lot of people who believe that um, that top office, that top executive role that somehow women – and a woman who actually even declares for it becomes somehow innately unlikable. Likeable women don't go out for it. Um, and my tendency is to believe that, that, that truly in this country as we sit here in, in 2020, that, that a backlash against a woman tapping into that, ve- that we have actually less prejudice against a gay man in that office than we do against um, – well, right now we don't, I believe, have any gay women, but it declare, but a, a straight woman, one of the straight women candidates, a female, that, that Pete's going to have a – have less of a backlash because he's male. He's got the right chromosomal makeup um, and that he will have a less time overcoming his sexual orientation than – Elizabeth Warren on on just that level. How do I do not I that? do not disagree with you. If, if you know, in in my uh, years in politics and years in office, do I, do I feel I was more handicapped by by being a woman than by being uh, openly LGBT by being a woman? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it, but we've run out of time. But what a pleasant afternoon it's been with Mayor Anise <laughs> Parker. So I got to sneak this in very very quick. How can we support your work at the Victory Fund, um, aside from making sure that we take a look at all the the candidates that the organization endorses? Well, not just Victory Fund, but Victory Institute, as I I said, we, we... uh, the, the two sides of their house, are from from a budgetary standpoint, are really co-equal, and and we uh, putting people into the process and having credible candidates run, even if they don't win their races, is is very important for us. One of the things you could do is you could go online. We have we maintain something called the Out for America map, and if you do an internet search for Out for America. Uh, it's every known LGBT elected official currently serving in the United States. Uh, we don't have people who have now who, who are no longer in office, and that's that's my dream someday to go back and capture the history. But you can see where people are running and and winning. 
And uh, if this is an issue that motivates you, you have an opportunity then to look to uh, the Victory Fund website. We list every one of the current candidates running, and you have an opportunity to make your own decisions and invest in some amazing candidates who will have a transformative effect on their communities. So thank you for that question. Well, thank you, Mayor Anise Parker. Thank you so much for being here in San Francisco with us. Thank you. I also want to thank you, the audience, for joining us here at the club. Uh, John and I do this program every week. He's been a great support. Uh, we have way more programs coming up to end the year. It's so much more interesting <laughs> to talk in front of an audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I hope you do come back and oh, yeah. join us. We have uh, the director of Pieces of Me, which is a documentary of Toni Morrison. So if you've got some time, check out the full listing of other programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We hope to see you next time. Great. Thank you. Thank you, man.